Please stand for the reading of God's word and turn to Exodus 16, um, verses 1 through 12. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At at evening you shall know that it was the Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of Yahweh, because he has heard your grumbling against Yahweh. For For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When Yahweh gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because Yahweh has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against Yahweh. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before Yahweh, before he has heard your grumbling. For he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the, and Yahweh your God. Uh, may the Lord bless the application of his word to our hearts. You may be seated. Before receiving the message, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your revealed word, revealed to us by the uh, person of your Holy Spirit, carried out this plan of of salvation that that is yours in doing, Father, yours in creating a plan that would allow us to be reconciled back. It was carried out by your Son. We thank you. We ask that you would allow the, the person of the Holy Spirit to illuminate these truths to our hearts that we might demonstrate our love to you. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning's message title is Navigating the Inevitable Wilderness of Thorns. And just to give us a little reminder, last week we were looking at the wilderness of Shur. And the wilderness of Shur, we learned, was the, uh, in Hebrew, translate, translating from the Hebrew to the English was the wilderness of watchful travelers. Well, now we're into a new wilderness. We have a new challenge. Last week we looked at how they grumbled and what it said about their, the bitterness in their hearts. And this week we see them grumbling as well. But we're going to focus on suffering itself. We're going to look at our response to suffering or what God calls us to do in the midst of suffering. We know that the world's idea, when it sees suffering, 
The world's is to either avoid it and go around it if they can, not so much, <laughs> or if they uh, can't go around it, to outrun it. The world's idea is suffering is bad, we don't want a part of it. And yet, we understand, as the title states, navigating the inevitable wilderness of thorns. We as Christians go through the suffering. God is the one leading us through, but we go through it. And we're going to see today that it has purpose for God doing just that, leading us through it. But I want to start off with a story that I think most can associate with in your, within your own context, and that is that we understand that our sufferings are oftentimes wasted in our youth, in our immaturity, whether it's our physical youth when we were physically little or, or young, or it is in the beginnings of our uh, walk of faith because we don't really understand suffering. We still are working off a platform that says, run away. I don't want to do this. I need to find what is the easy way and, and hold on to that. Let me give you an example of wasted suffering. When I was in sixth grade, there was a new young man that came to our school, our elementary school. I quickly uh, befriended him. I, uh, my family lived in the area of 7th Avenue and Dunlap. I'm going to give you some geography because you actually will recognize, you may not recognize 7th Avenue and Dunlap, but you'll recognize uh, the mountainous or the small mountains are more like hills in the area of the, uh, Interstate 51 and Northern. That's where he lived. Well, I had my little red motocross bike that every, every child in the DiBenedetto family got on their sixth grade Christmas. Uh, everyone got a bike. You were free to go. You could go in days that were less, it seems like there were less predators. I can't imagine my son doing what I did back then, driving that far without me knowing and seeing him. But long story short, after school one day, said, I told Mom ahead of time, going over his house, sure, go ahead. And off I head to his house. We end up at... at this new young boy's house, and we play for a while inside, different things. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I remember him saying, let's go hike the mountain behind our house. And I, that was a little far out of my geographic area that I normally stayed in, so to go up to the mountains, I thought, hey, that's cool, let's do it. Up, we go up this mountain. They're not really tall mountains, but as we start to get, oh, halfway, three-quarters of the way there, he points out that somebody's at the top of it, and he starts trying to, he, I don't know this at the time, but he starts trying to freak me out, get in, in my, underneath my skin, and he starts going, who is that? What's he going to do? He's going to kill us! And, I'm, and he's working me up, and I'm like, what? You know, what's going on? I'm in a new area. People over here weird. No one would do that where I live. What's going on? And he, he says, run! And I'm thinking, are you serious? And he was behind me as I'm walking up the mountain or trying to wake my, work my way up. I turn around, and he's actually running down the mountain. And I'm looking up, and I can see a guy, the way it is, I can only see his back. And all of a sudden, he hears my friend say, run, and he turns around, and now he and I are looking at each other. And I'm doing one of those back and forth, back and forth, I'm like, I'm out of here. I take off running down the mountain. I don't go very far before I realize my speed is way too fast. I've got to slow it down. Hard to slow down when you're running down a mountain. I end up falling. As I'm trying to slow, I fall backwards on both my hands. And I end up palming one of those cute little cactuses that fit right in your palm. 
And it went, and it wasn't a newer cute little cactus. It was one of those dead ones so that when I picked my hand up, it stayed with my hand, just a, like a tennis ball-sized cactus. I continued to run with my buddy until we got to his house and we hid from this man that was going to do nothing to us. Long story short, my takeaway in my suffering, and I might add that for the next three weeks, it was very difficult to use it. This hand was almost incapable. I learned how much I favored my right hand. I was right-handed. And, I mean, even riding home on my little motocross bike with only one hand. And his mom was a nurse, and she graciously tried to take all the splinters out, but she can't get them all out. And so over the next three weeks, slowly the body would push them out. And, I, you know, you could get a little bit more without too much pain. But the lesson I learned, the suffering was really wasted on me. My lessons were something along the line of walk, don't run. Be careful, you know, where you go to when you're falling, what you're, you're planting your hands on. And if you're a basketball, uh, if you like basketball, you might say, stick to palming basketballs and not cactus, because that's really what I had done. You could see that the value of that suffering in that context was trivial, almost worthless. They're, it's so obvious there's nothing new learned. I didn't gain anything. I didn't grow in a, in a, as a character or in character as a person. We, today we're going to see that suffering has value. And we're going to see how God uses that. And we're going to see also, this is event number two. They, you know, this, the Israelites just crossed the Red Sea. This is the second time he's pulling out an event and, uh, uh, where they have a need. And what do the Israelites do? This baby infant nation, they grumble. They're immature. They don't know anything other than not suffering. That's their whole platform they work off of. It's a world understanding or a worldly understanding of suffering. Suffering bad, stay away from it. So as you take a look at your bulletins in the area uh, where we recited earlier the uh, catechism, you'll see the takeaway listed there is the path to experiencing God, in other words, our walk of faith in Christ, winds through the wilderness of thorns. And I'm going to explain how we got to that understanding of the wilderness of thorns. So with that... Let's take a look. You're going to see the, the, the thorny theme continue on, whether it's in the title, whether it's in the story, or whether it's in the subcategories. You can see that we're staying with that idea of thorns, and thorns represent suffering. So our first point is this. Can thorns only prick the flesh? Is that all they do, like they did with me? Is that all they actually prick is the flesh of man and womankind? Well, let's take a look at 16. That is Exodus 16, chapter, excuse me, chapter 16, verse 1. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, if you were here last week, I'm going to reference some things back so we can see little different things going on. It says this, they set out. Remember last week when it said they set out, the word set out was in a form that said that Moses caused them to set out. And he was using a particular form so we would say, oh, Moses is going to get the blame here. Well, what's happening today is that's already a given. That's stipulated in the character of these people. Anything that goes wrong, Moses. Hey, you're God's uh, uh, representative. You're going to get, you're going to hear all my grumbling. So that's got a kind of a stipulated uh, um, understanding. And so we see that the, interesting enough, the Hebrew goes back to using the common, the common narrative form. Not because they're going to stop grumbling, because unfortunately, 
their character has already been exposed to us. We know what to expect from this immature group of Israelites. They, they set out from Elam and all the congregation of the, of the people of Israel. We're going to see this, this statement, this category of all the congregation over and over again. First, what Moses does in, in this particular sentence structure is he moves that all the way to the front. And that's not the way Hebrew works. So when he moves it all the way to the front, he's saying, hey, get this. Last time, last event, we were talking about the people of Israel. That context is better understood in today's context. That, that meant that there was grumbling among the people. But today, they're all in agreement. All the congregation of Israel is murmuring and grumbling at Moses. So let's continue on. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of Israel came into the wilderness of sin. We're tempted because it's in English as sin to think that that means sin as, as far as some, uh, you know, doing wrong against God. Well, that's actually not. That would be hata if it was in that particular, if it was in the Hebrew. It's just a word, a different word than what we know. And, the, and the, one of the interpretations of the word sin is thorns. Thus, in the title, thus, as it refers uh, metaphorically to suffering, this is the wilderness of thorns that they're in. So Israel came to the wilderness of thorns, which is between Elam and Sinai. This is the first time we see the word Sinai identified in the Bible. Moses is giving the, uh, uh, those generations that will read this that follow an idea that Sinai is the objective. Why is Sinai the first objective? It's the place where they're going to really get to know God because he's going to give the, the law, the fullness of the Ten Commandments and, and the civil and, and ceremonial law. And they're going to build a tabernacle where God will dwell. He will come and dwell in their midst. A huge thing that is lacking because they were last, last time they had that, they were in the garden. And they haven't had that since the garden. Mankind hasn't, hasn't had that. And certainly, although we see uh, uh, God will manifest himself in a pillar of fire uh, by night and a pillar of clouds by day, that kind of of, of, of presence is more of a protective presence. When we get to the tabernacle, it's that relational presence that's starting to see and, and be borne out. We want that. We crave that. We were designed for that by God himself. And God is bringing that, that about again. So when we see Sinai, it's loaded with the, theology. And then it says, on the 15th day of the second month, that means we are 30 days into this journey. It's been 30 days since the Passover occurred, and they were to leave that night and be prepared to leave, eat the Passover quickly, because boom, Exodus is happening, and we're heading out. So this is all the longer it's been since, since the Passover, since the last plague that killed the firstborn of the Egyptians and all of the animals. So we have an idea how long it's been. And after they had departed, he could have used different terminology. He could have said, after they they, he could, halak or shalach, that's just a narrative form. It just says, it just gives you an idea. Someone's telling a story and they're just kind of given direction. He doesn't say that. He says, that he uses the word that means exodus or exit. He's trying to get the people to realize this is more than just a narrative of where we're going. We are partaking in the exodus. We are experiencing God in this journey of the exodus. And so he continues on. And, they, and after they had departed or exited from the land of Egypt, 
and the whole congregation of the people of Israel. We're starting to see that emphasized by way of repeating. Now we're seeing repetition to emphasize it. Grumbled against Moses and not just Moses. Now we see his, his brother pop into the, into the narrative again. We haven't seen him for a while. It, Moses is letting them know that it's a shared grumbling. In other words, they focus on them because they are the ones that God is using to lead this people and communicate previously to Pharaoh and now give instruction to the people themselves. Grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Remember from the first, or last week, the first event, we said, look, what are we called to do? We're called to, to mimic, mirror, to reflect, to, to repeat what Moses did. When they came grumbling to him, Moses didn't grumble to God. Moses turned around and prayed to God. His people still are not praying to God. They're just grumbling to God's human representatives. They're immature. They don't know. I should say they haven't been trained. They're knowing. They're not applying yet. And we continue on. Grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt. I mean, I just, you talk about drama queen? Seriously? I mean, the, the wording there is there is so flowery and so, it, it's so poem-based kind of a, a thing. It's like, wow, you can grumble just as gutturally as you want to grumble. But when it comes to expressing yourself, and oh, it was so good back then. And it's an embellishment. They were slaves in Egypt. You just want to, if we could have just died like the, like the Egyptians... Like their firstborn back then? Man, that would have been swell. Really? So let, we continue on in this. Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Yes, slaves don't do that. Not like as if they get to just sit and daintily take part in a, a long meal as long as they want, to as much as they want. They're slaves. Here's your food. Here's how much food you get. Get back to work. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Well, let's look at this. Their Israelite statement is actually, in some sense, a question. And the question would go like this. Couldn't we just have been killed in Egypt instead of having to suffer? You see that? Really? You're gonna have to, you're gonna, if you're going to kill us anyway... By starvation, do we have to suffer for it? Do you see how wrong their thinking is about suffering? I can't help but think of my own journey. How wrong for so long I held on to my worldly belief about suffering. All suffering is evil. I should do as much as I can to get away from it. It's bad. At this point, we see all the Israelites, because it keeps saying the whole congregation, in agreement that all suffering is bad. To them, thorns only prick the flesh. The only thing they can see in their vision as it relates to suffering is that it's temporal. It's of this physical world. There is no value to it. Stay away from it. Certainly, there is no redeeming or transforming value is what their, their bellyaching is saying. Just make it stop and life would be good. And I could go on being who I am. I have no need of redemption, being redeemed into greater value as intended by God, 
or transformation, being made more and more into the image of Christ. Well, what's the Christian reality? We just talked about the Israelites that are belly aching. They're getting it wrong. What about our, us Christians? Well, when we grumble, we don't grumble in a lost world that doesn't listen. We grumble in a world where the lost are listening carefully to how we respond. Do we respond differently? We confess this God named Christ. We tell everyone that he has done so much for us. How much? Does it really change my attitude in the midst of the hardship? Or do you just like to go around professing your God when things are good and all he hears is grumbling when he is bad? Do we convey the same bad theology as those that we just saw in the Israelites? Yeah, I'm embarrassed to say, wow, I need to remember that. It's a listening world. What am I communicating in my theology? No, we should be communicating that suffering not only pricks the flesh, suffering pricks the heart, that which you can't see. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to use suffering to prick our hearts to say, I need to examine this situation. What is God doing in the midst of the suffering? If God is good, and we know he is good, if God is always for us, and we know that he is, then this thing that might be bad, someone could be sinning against me, it is bad, still can be used by God. In fact, rather than saying still could be used, I'm going to say it this way, was ordained by God despite the other person's sin. God uses somebody else's sin sinlessly in our suffering to bring about change. Do we recognize it as that, or do we just simply grumble? Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, 8-10. And the thing that I love about this is I think of when I, I want to measure myself up against somebody in the Bible, I don't dare measure myself up against Paul. Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul had the first five books of the Bible memorized, the Torah, the whole Torah. That was a requirement of a Pharisee. I don't have the brain capacity for that. That means he knew a lot of theology. And that's why it's so difficult when sometimes, when Peter says, sometimes the readings or the sayings of, of Paul are difficult to understand because Paul knows his theology. And so when I think of Paul, I think, whoa, he is, I mean, he certainly couldn't have to suffer on that level. He's so smart, so theological. God doesn't use suffering for him, right? Listen to this. In 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10. For we, Paul speaking about he and Timothy, do not want you to become unaware, brothers, of the affliction, another way of saying suffering, we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. God, just take me. This is, this is way hard. I, I don't even know if this life is worth it, is what that is saying. Indeed, and by the way, that's the reality of so many of the psalmists. And we need to follow that with, but God. And now he's going to follow that with, but God. But we learn from Paul and others in the Bible that it's okay to be very real with God. Don't think that this church or, or the Bible itself ever is teaching you that you can't be real with God. We don't accuse God. We don't assign blame to God. 
but we can be as real as real gets as far as this is tough, God. This is almost overwhelming me, but God. And so we read in in verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, like that was what God ordained from them. Are we just going to die in this situation? We're so overwhelmed. And then in verse 10, uh, and continuing here in verse 9, the back half of it. But that was, he's going to give us the, the, the reason for his suffering. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul need to be reminded of that truth. Paul, that theologian, that, that writer of the New Testament. Yeah. Yeah, God ordained that suffering so that either he, he needed to be reminded of it in the midst of his temptation or before he got there, or maybe he was in it and he started relying on himself. I don't know. But Paul needed that, and Paul recognized the value. Paul asked the right questions, and God gave him the right answers. I shouldn't say God gave him the right answers. He'd always give him the right answers. God gave him the answers, the, the understanding of what he was doing in, this, in allowing and ordaining Paul to go through that suffering. In fact, in verse 10, it continues, uh, He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope. Not only is Paul reminded, do not rely on my own flesh, my own capabilities, my own strength, but he also remembered in the midst of that suffering, Jesus Christ is my hope. In case I get off and I start looking, hoping in different things, hoping I can convince people of this, or, or, or speak elegantly enough to, to convey the, the gospel, or whatever it is, he said, no, 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 Christ is my hope. I place all my hope in Christ Jesus and what he is doing. So the next question we see here is, can thorns produce good? Well, we just saw they can with Paul, but I'm not sure we're at that place yet where we're convinced in our lives, we're not apostles, that suffering brings about good. Let's see what happened to the Israelites. Can thorns produce good? And we're in uh, verses 4 through 8. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, in other words, slow down. This is a biggie. Watch what's going to happen. That's all that's packed into the understanding. Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm about to do something supernatural in this situation that you will under, that you will hopefully come to appreciate. You know, we could look at that. I'm going to go ahead and in this particular section, I'm going to give us some application as we go. Looking at that, you might go, well, it doesn't rain bread from heaven anymore. That's an Old Testament thing. He's saying, I'm going to bring about a supernatural act to provide for you. Do you realize every time you pray for God's strength, he is bringing about his supernatural power into your life so that you have what we refer to as sustaining grace, the grace to continue in God's strength, not in ours. So in that sense, do, do not belittle what God is doing and the goodness that he extends to you and me today. Let's continue. I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out. Again, it's that the, the exodus verb. In other words, the people will go out, the people will partake in this experience of the exodus. The exodus is not just history. It is partaking in that which God is bringing them out of, and, and part of that is experiencing the wilderness of thorns. Don't think you're on probation and you're just trying to manage emotionally through your time in the wilderness of thorns until Jesus Christ takes you home. 
oh my goodness, well, you have missed participating with God, engaging with, experiencing, and relating to your God. Realize that we are to partake in this. And he said, you shall go out and gather a day's portion, excuse me, a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Does God not know whether they will walk in his law or not? Of course he knows. He's, um, he's all-knowing. It's for our benefit. Ever been tested before and failed the test and actually said to God, thank you, I needed that. I was getting a little haughty. I was starting to rely on, on, on me and what I could do. Whether it's teaching Sunday school for me if I don't study well enough and like, oh, I got this, and all of a sudden you're like, well, I don't know. That theology bumps into that. Well, I'm not sure. Yeah, I was doing it. I was studying in my flesh. Or maybe it's you. Well, work is secular part of my life. I've compartmentalized that. I don't need Jesus at work. I'll get with him in the morning and then when I get home. Oh, you have missed. You have totally missed it there. Let's continue on. You, I'll say it this way. If you find work difficult, if the stresses overwhelm you, there's a chance that you're doing work in your own flesh. Now, we've, there's much to talk about on how to work through that, but there's that possibility. We are, God allows those difficulties to help us realize we need more of God in the midst of this. On the sixth day, when they had prepared what they bring in, it will be twice as much as what they gather daily. This is fascinating. Do you realize most, I certainly never knew this until I started becoming and still, I started being exposed to the theology that recognizes that the Old Testament has value for us. It's not just the Old Testament, and we just hang out in the New Testament. When I started being taught that and realizing that, then I started looking at the Old Testament differently. We start realizing that what God did in, in the creation order, he created in six days, and then on the seventh day, he, he, he rested we are his image bearers. We are called to rest as well. He is ordering not just creation. He is ordering our lives, our seven-day week, and what we are to do. He continues to move in, in that direction to further expouse and let us know that the rest is ultimately, the physical rest of the Exodus points forward to the spiritual rest we have in the work of Christ Jesus in his new creation and him bringing about salvation. So we start to see that Oh, wait a second. The Israelites, before they ever get the law issued to them at Mount Sinai, God is doing something that says, do you recognize what I did by resting? And you're supposed to rest as well? I'm, he's reminding them of this creation ordinance, if you will, or this creation order so that we will get it. By the time we get to the New Testament, we can start co connecting things. And so what does he do? He says on the sixth day, you're going to go out and get twice as much. Do you realize, have you thought about that? You, you, God comes to you and says, hey, I, I, I want to be careful how I say that. I don't want to sound mystical. You feel convicted by God. He's got you in this place, and you realize, God, how am I going to honor your word and handle this suffering? I can't do both. This is saying you can honor the Lord's Sabbath and still 
Be able to honor the fact that one day out of the week, you're going to gain two. Every other day, every other day of the week, the other five days, you're only going to collect as much for one day. By the way, which happens to be a pattern of relying on God daily is what he's starting to establish. So the people get it. Don't pick up a whole bunch because tomorrow you need to come looking to depend upon me for your provision. My point is this. Even in the midst of his order, he allows his grace to allow us to perform how we're called to perform, how we're called to live out, and yet still honor that which he has already designated, such as the Lord's Supper. Praise be to God. And we continue on in verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was Yahweh, in other words, not Moses, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Yes, Moses is the human being that was the representative of God. But it's so that they would know that it's Yahweh behind it all. It's not any false gods, and it's certainly not a human being. That's a grace to understand that. You could actually start to uh, turn either Pastor Pete, myself, Pastor Mark, Pastor PJ, into this, this pastor that is, oh, this is my pastor. And you put him on this, this pedestal that he can do no wrong. It's absolutely backwards. We are stinky sheep, just like you are stinky sheep. Only we're called to lead the stinky sheep by way of what God has said to do in here in our role as pastors. This is saying don't ever get in a place. And Moses is reminding them, don't ever get in a place of putting whoever is leading in the place of God. It's God who's ultimately leading. Another blessing that God brings here. And then he says this in verse 7. And in the morning you shall see the glory of Yahweh, because he has heard your grumbling against Yahweh. For what we... for What are we that you grumble against us? Again, we are just mere men. And Moses said, when Yahweh gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to to the full. Remember when they embellished at the beginning of this and they said, just kill us. We just want to be able to sit by the fire, the the, the meat pots and eat meat and, and, and eat bread. Man, if I am their daddy and they're grumbling like this again, they're going to get somebody different than the good and gracious, compassionate God. I'd be tired. I'd start to tire of this whining and pointing fingers. I already showed you before I could bring water to you. You don't believe me that I can bring now food to you? I can't provide for you? But he doesn't do that. God graciously is giving these immature Israelites, this new nation who, who rely on what they know from the Egyptian gods that they lived under for 400 years, he lovingly teaching them, training them, being patient with them, long-suffering. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of a heads up. After he gives them the law at Mount Sinai, the law is, this is who I am in law form. If you want to know me, look at the laws, the principles behind the laws, and you will know your God. Once he does that as a parent, Then when they go to grumble, it's a different response. And we're going to see discipline when they go to leave Mount Sinai. But on this side, they don't know who he is. And he loves them through their grumbling. And what a beautiful picture of the goodness of God when we don't really understand him sometimes and how patient he is with us. And he says this, Because Yahweh has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? In other words, again, Moses is saying we're nothing. Your grumbling is not against us, but against Yahweh. And we saw that last week. We saw the conviction that when we grumble, 
we are telling the world that our God is not good, that he's not in control, and he's certainly not able to provide good in the midst of our suffering. And so it's a false statement. Well, now let's, let's shift here, and let's end our time looking at the question, can thorns identify your God? Absolutely. In our suffering, we will, we will turn to our God. And that sounds really good if you're a mature Christian and you're actually turning to the one true living God. But most of us realize when God turns up the heat, we run to whatever idol we believe is our God that will take away the problem. Is it escape? Is it pleasure? Is it apathy for God? I don't care about you, God, because you don't care about me. Is it believing that there is something that you can do, some type of self-righteous performance to earn your position back with God? Suffering causes us to turn either to our false idols or to the one true God. And God has designed it. The one true God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has designed suffering so that we will recognize the idols of our lives and turn away from them and turn towards him. He, so we can get to that place where we say, my God is Yahweh. Or another way of saying that is, my God is the God who saved me, is Jesus Christ himself. And you're not afraid to say it big and bold when someone asks you. You don't hide behind such words as, yeah, the good Lord, or God, of course God loves me. And everyone doesn't know what God you're talking about. And we all seem to have the same God. No, no, no. Identify. He, he is using the words of his personal name. He told them to call him Yahweh. Is Jesus Christ your God? Is he my God? Well, how do I refer to him in the public setting when it will set me apart as all those that have some form of God? These are the questions we need to ask ourselves. So let's take a look at, can thorns identify your God? Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel. Again, we're dealing with that, that emphasis on all of them. Come near before Yahweh. We're going to see in a moment in the New Testament those words are used by the writer of Hebrew where he says, draw near. In this case, he says, come near before Yahweh for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud. They are called to go towards that manifestation of glory. They know that Yahweh has been with them in the wilderness, but they're not going to approach him. They're going to stay in the little huddles of groups of people and grumble about Moses. And so that the whole people is one big mass of grumblers instead of a people that is willing to go towards Yahweh. Verse 11 says this, And Yahweh said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them at twilight, twilight is that time of sunset, you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread and this is what I was referring to earlier, then you shall know, and he means this by way of experience, by them eating meat, by them receiving bread, by them actually engaging in what God has given them in the goodness he has provided for them, 
he says this, that, excuse me, you, then you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God. The knowing is not intellectual knowing. I should say it doesn't stop there. It continues on to experience. When we're apathetic, we are not willing to experience God. When we, we don't care, we're in, we're, when we're, we're indifferent and we're like, I'm just going to get through, I'm just going to muscle through this, I'm just going to do what has worked for me in the past, we are missing God, our God, and we're making something else or someone else our God. So let me ask you this question. How has God manifest, manifested himself in your suffering? Has he demonstrated his compassion that you can look back and go, Man, he was so compassionate. He did this. And I'm talking about you can give it a, a physical world, a real world example. Man, I know his love. I was down on him and I was so convicted by the Holy Spirit in the midst of that, who my God is. And he showed me by, in my time of prayer all the ways. He showed me by reminding me all the ways he loves me. Or, man, my, my God is long-suffering. This is the one that comes to my mind. Because I sit there and I think, really, I'm sinning again? What a long-suffering God dealing with me at 58 and still falling to some of the sins that I have in the past. I can experience who my God is and know him when I approach him. If you can't think of how he manifested himself in your suffering recently, I don't know all the things, but I can say just maybe you chose not to come near. You chose not to draw near. Listen to what Hebrews says. Hebrews says this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Interesting, Pastor Pete was talking about uh, words and concepts being used by uh, uh, location or giving you an idea of what it is. Well, there is no throne of grace as we stand. Like, maybe if I look carefully enough, through the, the heat waves of Phoenix, I'll see the throne of grace. And I'll see it out there. No, it's not talking about that. It's saying get on your knees or whatever it takes you to do to get in the right mind, to stop to, uh, relying on yourself, approach, draw near in confidence because of what Jesus Christ has done. You get to enter into the throne room and be at the, the throne of grace. Isn't that beautiful? It's a throne of grace. It's not a throne of judgment. He is waiting for you and me to approach him. He says to us, let us draw near in confidence. The let us draw near is not as if he's saying, wooing you. It's actually in the command form. Like, come on, we got to draw near. This is what we're called to do. This is what God calls us to do. And what will we find according to Hebrews? That we may receive mercy. Lord, I did it again. Will you forgive me? Yes, Nick, I will forgive you again. I love you. I don't rack up the points against you. You've come to me. I have forgiven you. And that you may find grace. God, I need your sustaining grace so I don't do this sin in 27 seconds. I need you desperately. I need your grace, your sustaining grace. We draw near to, to receive mercy and to find grace that we can have that relationship, that personal, real, tangible, experiencing relationship with our God. 
I'll leave you with uh, the takeaway as a reminder, and then I, I want to give you one thing that I like to refer to as the big picture reality. A reminder that our takeaway today is the path to knowing God winds through the wilderness of thorns. Stop trying to run away from that path. That path has value because God chooses to show us our, our false gods, to show us where we fall short in imaging him, to show us the strength, the beauty, the relationship, the love he has for us. And we only get to experience that if we're willing to go through it. If you're scared, tell him. If you're so scared you need somebody's faith to rely on, tell someone else. And let us walk with you in discipleship through the wilderness of thorns. We're a church. We go through this as a people of God, just as the Israelites were called to go through it as a people of God. Now the big picture reality. The ultimate value in suffering culminates in a single person. And hopefully you're all picturing who that person is. That person is Jesus Christ, who is willing to suffer and die for our salvation, to take our sins so that we could be reconciled back to God the Father. Incredible. Do you see the economy of suffering? Jesus goes through the wilderness of thorns. And interestingly enough, he gets identified as the Savior of the world. How, you say? Through the wilderness of thorns? He is the only human being worthy and the one that had no sin, and yet he has placed on his head a twisted crown of thorns. It's ironic that his enemies mockingly hailed Jesus Christ as the king of the Jews, the king that would one day bring salvation to the people. They ironically, his enemies were right. They crowned the savior of the world and they crowned him with a crown of thorns. That's culmination of the value of suffering. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that those that are Christians have come to the place where they have repented and believe in these truths of what your son has done. And if there is anyone here that has not done that, I hope that today was conveyed the message of the loving, patient, long-suffering God that you are, that you are willing to, to send your son to die for us. And then in our immaturity of our faith, when we're trying to figure out what is it of the world that I still have stained on my soul that I need to get rid of, you love us in the midst of that. You bring us to a place where we know you more and more. You are an incredible God. Please convict those that don't know you, that are, are, are of the category of unbeliever, to believe, to repent and believe in what Christ has done. And for us, Heavenly Father, for us Christians, help us to recognize the value of suffering. Help us to be convicted that we are going to go through because we know that it has value, that you are going to use this to transform us more and more into the image of your Son. Keep us headed the right direction, on the right path, certainly for your glory. And oh, we know when we taste and see that you are good by going through this wilderness of thorns. 
We know it's for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.